0: "We're on the record-I'm Sheila Cass, good morning." George Washington, father of our country, soldier, farmer, patriot, politician-"Wait, what, politician?" David o Stewart structures his biography of Washington around the idea that Washington was a master politician, not by gift and natural talent, but by hard work and careful observation. Stewart is not daunted that few people of that era or generations since saw Washington as a political operator. Stewart contends that only proves how skillful a Paul Washington was. The biography is titled, George Washington, The Political Rise of America's Founding Father. When I spoke with David O. Stewart in the fall of 2021, I mentioned that he has indulged me several times by highlighting for us the Maryland connections in his works. In this book, George Washington is so deeply rooted in Virginia, it's uphill to find a Maryland angle. But there is a mesmerizing moment when Washington is not quite 52 years old that takes place in Annapolis. I asked Stuart to set that scene for us. Why was Washington in Maryland's capital?
1: We'd won the war, which was a good thing. The British had been defeated and uh, peace had been signed. And uh, he had held the Army together that year. It had been a very difficult year. The Army was not being paid. They were not taken care of well, which was the nation's practice throughout that war. And there were mutinies. There was real risk of uh, some sort of military unrest. And he had headed all that off. Um, And he was finally, after eight years of military service, going to be able to go home. Uh, The Congress was in uh, Annapolis uh, temporarily. They had uh, fled various capitals through the life of the war, they'd been temporarily in different places and they had settled in Annapolis. It was accessible by uh, ship, which was important. And uh, they had a suitable building that the uh, state made available. And so in the current, what is now the current state house, uh, he was reporting for the last time. He had always answered to Congress as head of the army And he was, uh, had been called there and and was on his way home to Mount Vernon from New York where he had been serving and uh, was going to resign his commission. Um, It was a terrifically somber moment. Of course, the night before they had a big party and uh, Washington danced every dance, which he always loved to do. Um, But the day of the event um, was a very serious affair.
0: And you write, quote, all his achievements, nothing so impressed Washington's contemporaries as this resignation."
1: Why? He gave up power. People don't do that. Uh, We've just finished a national election where um, we had a leader who had a lot of trouble doing that. And Washington wanted to go home. Uh, He was tired. He missed Mount Vernon and he thought it was important for other people to lead um, the new nation. And the amazement of many people uh, that he would do so uh, was pretty universal, more so in Europe even than here. Uh, There's a famous episode where King George III was told that Washington had resigned from the army and gone home. And King George said, well, if that's true, and he obviously didn't quite believe it, um, then he's the greatest man in the world. Uh, and there was no tradition of people giving up power in, in most of recorded history at the time. Uh, you know, and a lot of revolutions end up in dictatorships and had then Oliver Cromwell in England Uh, Certainly Rome and ancient Rome had that experience. So it it was a remarkable event. And I think it was, in many ways, a cornerstone of his future political success because people felt they could trust him. He simply was there to serve.
0: Let's backtrack. How did Washington come to be general of the colonial army anyway? I mean, you point to his appointment as a key political win.
1: Yeah, he was... Uh, appointed, and of course, there's a wonderful Maryland angle here. That, uh, the former governor of Maryland, Thomas Johnson, a friend of his, was the person who had nominated him uh, in the Continental Congress. But he was a prominent figure at the time. And the Americans had a very shallow pool of people with military talent and experience. There were a couple of men who had served in the British military and then. Emigrated to this country. So we didn't quite trust them. We had a few folks who had fought in the French and Indian War and hadn't really done much. And then there was Washington who had led the Virginia regiment for four years during the war with a very mixed record. I think the public impression of his talents was and experience was greater than the reality. And he had managed, the Continental Congress met twice. And he had been at both sessions and had exercised one of his greatest talents, which was to win the trust of other people. And you know, he was a, a large self-possessed man uh, with very affable manners. Uh, I was surprised that we think of him as this, this distant marble figure, but people who knew him said, you know, he was just really good company. And he was a thoughtful man. He, he was very careful never to speak on an issue unless he knew what he, thought, what he really felt. And he won the confidence of his contemporaries. And when it came time to pick a commander-in-chief, he was the obvious candidate, uh, partly because he was wearing his militia uniform through the entire session, which...
0: <laughs> I laughed out loud when I read that. He wore his military uniform to every session of the Continental
1: Congress? Well, the second one, yes. (laughs) And it seems a little goofy to me, and somebody might have thought he was pushing a little hard, but none of the people at the time seemed to have been put off by it. And so I try to interpret it as he was showing his willingness to serve. And I say in the book, it's a little like someone who shows up at your party with a guitar and obviously wants to be asked to favor us with a song. Um, But he uh, also had a a sort of real politic um, advantage, which was the army that he would, that we were going, that we had in the field was gathered around Boston. It was all New Englanders, but this was to be a national uh, revolution or war for national independence. So you needed the South to be represented in its leadership so that he was from Virginia and Virginia was the largest colony now state was very important and John Adams also endorsed his uh, candidacy and and his position was that they needed to have a southerner in charge in order to attract the loyalty of uh, those states as well.
0: That's historian David O. Stewart who lives and works in Montgomery County Maryland. On the record on WYPR, Sheila Cast, we're talking about his latest biography, The Political Rise of George Washington. You write in such an engaging, almost chatty tone of a political junkie, but it's based on painstaking research. More than one-fifth of the 500 pages are small-type footnotes. Why did you think the world needed another biography of the Founding Father?
1: I I think we have forgotten what a tremendous political talent he was. Uh, And as you suggested in the introduction, he was self-taught. When he began in politics, he was actually pretty lousy at it. And he became just deft, uh, a, a true adept. And I, I wanted to demonstrate that and to illustrate it and to tie it to a period in his life that is often ignored, which is he serves in the French and Indian War and it's, you know, screaming and bloodshed and Indian battles and and people have written a good deal about that. And then, of course, there's the Revolutionary War years and the time as president. But everybody skips over the 16-year period between the French and Indian War and the time he takes over the Continental Army. And I think that was a key period for him. I often refer to it as his wilderness years. It's when he he grew up, he had been a very young man, as head of the Virginia Regiment in the French and Indian War. He matured. Um, he performed in great deal of public service and political service that he, he learned from. He was in the House of Burgesses, which was the colonial legislature for 16 years, five years longer than he was in the military. He uh, won four elections to it. He then kept winning elections to the Continental Congress. He was a justice of the Fairfax County Court, which had a lot of administrative duties. Um, and he was always good at administration. And And he learned about working with other people in a political setting, about developing coalitions and gaining support for your ideas in a way that as a young man, he hadn't bothered with. He'd been pretty headstrong and willful. And I think this period really ripened him in in an essential way. So when he takes over the Continental Army, he understands that, you know, he can't just say it and it it will be so. He needs to find support in Congress. He needs to find governors who will support him. He needs to have officers who buy into his vision and his ideas for the army. And it's a much more collegial fellow than in his early years. And I think it it was a key period.
0: What did you discover about George Washington that surprised you?
1: Uh, Mostly uh, how hard he had to work to succeed. There is This image that, well, you know, he was big and he was rich and everything came easy. And he was big. (laughs) He was over 6'2". And in those days, that was pretty tall. And it never hurts to be tall. But he wasn't rich. He had to make his own money. And he did it the old-fashioned way. He married it. And he was very aware of his own shortcomings. He's an interesting Series of contradictions, but one of the sort of frustrating things about the guy is he will, you have to look real hard to find him ever admitting that he was wrong about something. He, he didn't like to do that. But you can see if he messes something up, he doesn't make that mistake again. He went to school his whole life. That was a phrase that was used about him by one of fellow who was one of his mentors. And he did go to school his whole life and figured out how to improve himself in his own conduct. He always worked on improving uh, Mount Vernon. He was a hard worker. And it was this relentless exercise in self-improvement, which I think produced an extraordinary leader.
0: We need to take a short break on the record. We're talking to historian David O. Stewart about his biography, George Washington, the political rise of America's founding father. When we're back, how Washington viewed slavery and dealt with it. I'm Sheila Cast. Stay with us. Welcome back to On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast. All the founding fathers who enslaved people wrote or spoke about how they deplored slavery. None, except Washington, freed those they enslaved, and he did it at the last possible minute. Historian David O. Stewart traces Washington's thinking about slavery in his biography, George Washington, The Political Rise of America's Founding Father. When we spoke in 2021, I asked Stewart what is known about what the young George Washington thought about slavery.
1: Well, he didn't talk about it much until he was uh, commander in chief of the Continental Army during the Revolution. So, we don't know much from his own pen or his own voice. We can infer, however, from his conduct, in which he assembled quite a slave enslaved labor force at Mount Vernon, and he followed all the traditional practices of slave owners of the time in Virginia. Uh, There's no evidence that it caused him. Much concern. It's just not there that uh, that it bothered him until he was into his forties, um, which is a little dismaying. But he was a hard-headed guy who was intent on making a success of his plantation. The labor force he had was enslaved, and that's what he was going to work with.
0: You say he followed the practices of the time. There's this euphemistic language you write about, calling the enslaved. People of the plantation, the family, and talking about correction. What did correction
1: mean? Corporal punishment, uh, whipping most often, but it could just be a cuff, uh, uh, just hitting someone. Um, he was a big guy, I've, I've said, and uh, he and the slaves tended to be smaller people, and and he did hit them. We have firsthand accounts of that by the formerly enslaved there. So you know, there's nothing good. Um, Mary Thompson. Of Mount Vernon has written a book on slavery at Mount Vernon, and she has a wonderful passage that says, you know, basically anything bad that could happen in a slave's life happened at Mount Vernon. You know, we just have to face that.
0: Tell us about Ona Judge and other enslaved people who escaped from George and Martha Washington.
1: Close to 50 of his enslaved workers did escape. He recovered most of them. And there were some he, he got rid of after several escape attempts and happily, and he, in a couple of instances, sent them off to the Caribbean, which was probably a death sentence. Ona Judge was uh, Martha's personal attendant. And when she ran off, that was a great insult to Martha. And it's it's at a time when Washington actually No longer holds traditional views about slavery. He is trying to get out of his life as a slave owner. But we think because Martha was so upset about this, he pursued Ona Judge very aggressively. She fled to New Hampshire, ultimately. Um, And he found her. He had people find her there and tried to get her to come back. She refused, um, which was pretty smart.
0: This is on the record. On WIPR, I'm Sheila Kass, speaking with historian David O. Stewart about his biography of George Washington. One of its last chapters is titled Wrestling with Sin. When did Washington change his thinking about slavery?
1: Uh, During the the Revolutionary War, and there are two factors that I can see. One is he's exposed to anti-slavery views intimately or by intimates including many of his staff members who were northern folks, people like Alexander Hamilton or Marquis de Lafayette, who harangued him about slavery, uh, and a man from South Carolina, John Lawrence, all of whom thought it was simply a crime. And Washington also, I think, was terribly moved by the African-American soldiers in the Continental Army. He had it total loyalty to all the men who served with him and the sacrifices they made. Uh, they were in terrible conditions. Much of the time they were ill-treated by their country and many got sick, uh, many died. And he respected them throughout the rest of his life. And he could not ignore the fact that some of these people were black and they, some had been the slaves. And he had to confront the fact that these actually were real people just like him. Of course, he'd known that, but this made it so vivid that they were dying for his liberty. And he initially seems to have decided he would be a good slave owner. And he quickly discovered that that was an oxymoron, that there is no such thing as a good slave owner. And uh, after the war, he resolves to try to stop being a slave owner. Now, the the catch is he doesn't want to lose his his standard of living. So that is not going to be easy. And he spends about 10 years trying to make this work, and he fails.
0: What did Washington ultimately do?
1: It's complicated by an odd quirk of the law and his domestic situation. By the end of his life, there's about 130 slaves at Mount Vernon whom he owns outright and he controls their condition. Um, But there are even more, uh, 170 or so, who are owned by Martha Washington's first husband's estate and he can't free them. He's legally required to protect their value for the heirs to the Custis estate who are Martha's granddaughters And so the only way he can free them is if he can buy them from the estate, which means he needs a tremendous amount of capital, cash, which is one thing he never had. Um, He had a lot of land. He had something like 50,000 acres, much of it out in what was then the West. Um, And he desperately tried to sell that land or lease it, somehow convert it into cash that he could use to buy these slaves and then emancipate them. And he never succeeded. There was a whole continent that we were in the process of seizing from the Indian tribes who traditionally lived there. And there just wasn't a market to buy the the land at prices he would sell at. So he ends up in the final year of his life, just half a year before he dies, uh, rewriting his will and directing that his own slaves the 130 or so be emancipated upon Martha's death. He did not want to inconvenience her. There are a couple of elements of that. One is because they had the two communities of enslaved people had been at Mount Vernon for so long, they had intermarried and families were intermarried. So he knew this was gonna create messy domestic problems for them and he just couldn't avoid that. The other thing was Martha discovered after he died um, that she didn't much care having 130 people living close to her who uh, would become free as soon as she died. Um, it, it was anxiety-provoking. Um, there, being poisoned by your slaves was actually a thing for Virginia slave owners. James Madison's grandfather had been poisoned by a slave.
0: What did Martha Washington do about George's will?
1: So she pretty promptly uh, directed her uh, George's nephew Bushrod Washington uh, who was executor of the estate to uh, arranged to have them all freed so within a year of uh, Washington's death they were all uh, freed
0: so it's complex I understand that but still you describe sort of a moral awakening that George Washington had, As he led the Continental Army. But after that, during eight years as president, Washington never said a word publicly about slavery.
1: He did not. He was very much afraid that it would drive the country apart, that slavery was such a divisive issue. And he spoke in private to a number of people about his desire that slavery be ended, that there be legislation. To end it, Uh, many Northern states had such legislation with gradual emancipation laws, which could take 30 or 40 years to really take effect, but they did ultimately take effect. And he never spoke in public though, which it's pretty possible to look back at as a failure. I would characterize it that um, he was our greatest leader and he was silent on this pressing moral issue And when he finally directs the emancipation of his own slaves on his death, I don't think he did it as a model to the nation. I don't think he thought Southern slave owners would copy him, Uh, he knew them. (laughs) They were not people inclined to do that. I think it was an act of personal contrition that he had been part of this. At one point he writes to a, a close associate about his attempts to liberate his slaves, and he says, I hope this would not be displeasing to my maker. And I I think he was carrying a load from the way he lived and what he had done, and um, this was an effort to put some of that down.
0: And George Washington was 67 when he died in December 1799. I appreciate your giving us so much insight. Thanks, David.
1: My great pleasure.
0: Historian David O. Stewart wrote the biography, George Washington, The Political Rise of America's Founding Father. We spoke in September 2021. Stewart's latest book is historical fiction, the second of a planned trilogy about different generations of a family living in Maine. It's called The Burning Land. I'm Sheila Cast. Glad you're with us on The Record. Come back tomorrow.